Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. When you're a fashion editor, dressing up for work isn't a requirement, but it is part of the fun of the job. And believe it or not, it also spurs some of our best feature ideas. Looking around the table today, I see Charlie Gowan's Eglinton in a fabulous, like, 70s-style tapestry skirt with a Gucci belt. Bethan is wearing um, checked suiting. Lisa has some incredible statement earrings. Uh, And I'm wearing the famous Alexander McQueen jumper from Fashion Week. Oh, that is your trophy for life, isn't it? Trophy for life. It's also very, very hot, so I didn't have to wear a coat today. It's great cutting down on the layers. I'm Emily Cronin, and this is Fashion Unzipped. Later today, we'll run through our high street shopping list, including why some of our favorite shoes come with surprisingly low price tags. With me in the studio to talk about all this and more are Lisa Armstrong. Hello. Charlie Gowans Eglinton. Hi. And Bethan Holt. Hello. But first, we must pay tribute. On Monday, we received word that Hubert de Givenchy had passed away, aged 91. The legendary French couturier was an aristocrat who embraced the work of the atelier, wearing a white lab coat as he tended to clients including Grace Kelly, Jacqueline Kennedy, and, most famously, Audrey Hepburn. Their collaboration created some of the most enduring fashion statements ever to appear on film. Givenchy created Hepburn's full wardrobe for Sabrina, as well as the little black dress that Hepburn wore in Breakfast at Tiffany's, and costumes for five more for films besides. Lisa, you've written about him for the paper. What what would you say was his greatest contribution and, and most enduring legacy in terms of fashion? Um, I think we, we all know his, his greatest contribution, even if we think we know nothing about fashion, which was probably that little black dress that's in a gazillion uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's posters. But his legacy, what I've written about in the paper, was... Um, was the fact that he put the client front and centre of everything he did. It was always about the client. So that very famous Sabrina neckline that he developed, the bows that became a signature of his, that was all about making Audrey Hepburn look and feel comfortable. She was very self-conscious, apparently, about her bony um, collarbones. I mean, she was very, very thin, Audrey Hepburn. So that's why he developed the bows at the neckline for her, to disguise that. And, um, you know, when he dressed Jackie Kennedy and Grace Kelly, it was all about making their bodies look as elegant as possible. He said that, you know, the skill of a couturier was akin to that of a cosmetic surgeon. So sometimes when you look at what he did, it's easy to underestimate it because it was always about being classic and discreet, really. But, you know, that disguised this incredible engineering skill that he had and also amazing taste. 
It says a lot that from 1957, when she filmed Funny Face, Hepburn's contracts all included non-negotiable clauses stipulating that Givenchy had to design the entire wardrobe. And, you know, I would have done the same as Audrey. I think he- I tried to get that in my telecom contract, <laughs> but he wasn't available. Well, you didn't, you didn't manage. Um, you got Alexander McQueen <laughs> instead, Emily. I, you it. know, I, I, and, I, and I do think it's amazing that 70 years after the event, if you ask the average Joe on the street, you know, what is the epitome of style and chic, Audrey would be a name that springs to many people's lips, even people who, you know, say they don't know anything about fashion. Tiffany's recently have even started doing, you can have breakfast at Tiffany's now, they've opened a cafe, because that is how enduring those films are. You know, Hepburn was just everything to so many women and they still think now what looks elegant and they think Audrey Hepburn. It's amazing isn't it because she does still look modern albeit Mm. you know she was also very much of her time. I think one of my favourite stories about Givenchy which has kind of come out over the past few days was the tale of him staying up all night yes, to, to create the um, yeah Wallace Simpson's outfit for her husband's funeral which was obviously such a kind of seminal sort of end moment to this um, and that, love that's affair, what I mean which about should, putting the client first. I yeah. mean, one of the things I've, with the point of the piece tomorrow, is that that can't exist anymore. That relationship, designers don't have time. You know, Karl Lagerfeld doesn't, and nor did he even ten years ago, go to the fittings of 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 his clients. Nor would Giorgio Armani. They are so busy being present on a bigger stage. You know, traveling all over the world, going to personal appearances. The red carpet is as close as they get to to dressing a client. But even then, you know, they do 10 sketches. One may be picked up. They don't even necessarily meet meet that celebrity. It's a whole different thing. And I think that really has had an impact on fashion. Because if you look at the way what Givenchy did for Audrey and Jackie Kennedy trickled down to the average woman they ended up with beautiful clothes they could wear any price level and that's that doesn't really happen that's why so many women say they can't find clothes to wear is that a viable business model any longer i mean i know that audrey audrey always paid full price for her clothes i learned when i am um, that's interesting i looked at her wardrobe there was a huge auction of some of her uh, fashion items and personal effects at, at christie's last year uh, which is actually, sidebar, how she found Valentino. She was living in Rome, and she asked some well-dressed Roman friends if there was anyone perhaps a bit more affordable than Mr. Givenchy and found a young Valentino. Oh, that's a great um, anecdote. So she, you know, is it... No, it's not. obviously not. It's no. obviously not a viable business model, but I think that, again, is how the business has changed. I mean, Givenchy in the 1950s, Uber, Coco, Chanel... I don't think they would ever have aspired to have billion-dollar brands. They wanted a very good life, and they had very good lives. They made, you know, a lot of money, but it was nothing like the scale of today. I mean, obviously, yesterday we were thinking Hubert de Givenchy, but now when you think Givenchy, you don't think about a man toiling in an atelier, do you? You think this kind of big, powerful, global brand. I mean, certainly until Claire Wake Keller came along when yes. Ricardo Tisky well, was there. That's and interesting, Bethan, isn't it? Because what Ricardo, I mean, the way Ricardo Tisky rescued that brand really was to turn it into something of a T-shirt and a handbag and a, and, a, and, a, and a trainer brand with the collaborations that he did on, on the trainers. And that's how you get the numbers. And it, that's almost, you know... I mean, obviously, you completely can't compare them, but, you know, the the chic little black dress that a woman needed in the 1960s, the trainers and the T-shirt now is kind of the equivalent Ooh, for some women. I don't know. But, but then Hubert de Givenchy <laughs> didn't just do 
beautiful ball gowns. He also did, you know, Audrey's funny face, the black roll yeah. neck, and he, the little he, black cigarette he, he, he was the one who made separates so yeah. um, so um, fashionable. I totally agree. When I was writing my piece, Beth, and I thought, well, you know. Sneakers are clearly relevant to millions of us, all of us included. We love we love a good pair of sneakers. But you know, <laughs> is that really a sustain is that a legacy for the for the future? I Maybe. I don't know. I mean, to <laughs> me the closest that we have now to a designer who had a, a muse, if we can put it like that, was Phoebe Filo, that muse being herself. Mm. So when she came out on the runway for two seconds at the end of her shows, everybody was looking to see, oh, she's wearing Stan Smith sells millions of Stan Smiths, you know, or she's got her hair tucked into her sweater. Who, who's going to do that for us now? Well, Let's see. I, I really don't know. I mean, it does make me think, though, that this is also another step in um, the passing of an era where designers, new designers to these named houses would go and kind of seek the approval or blessing of, of the person whose name is above the door. I think Claire Waite Keller, when she joined Givenchy, did go have tea with, with yes. Mr. Givenchy. And no one will ever get to do that again. No. And thank goodness she did. Thank she goodness she did. one of the first things she asked for when, when she was appointed to that role was to meet him. And I think maybe that means we will see a bit of a return to the Givenchy lady because I think... Well, she, that she is actually lost. doing that, isn't she? I mean, it's, if we can judge by the first collection she, that she did in September, which actually a lot of the audience found underwhelming. But it was because they black, thought it was too it? commercial. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as if commercial is a terrible crime. I... It's going to be very interesting to see. It's not to say that one is necessarily better than the other. It is just very different now. You can read Lisa's full appreciation of Givenchy in Wednesday's paper and online. Meanwhile, another name in the news this weekend was Hedy Lamarr's. Lamarr, a silver screen actress, was always frustrated by the feeling that no one believed she could ever be more than a pretty face, even though she invented a precursor to Wi-Fi. Lisa, tell us more. Well, I first knew about Hedy Lamarr when I was a a kid because I was such a film nerd. But to me then, she was just this exquisite movie star uh, whose looks transcended, you know, the decades. Because often when you look back at beauties from the 30s, they look a bit strange to us now but she is just an incredible beauty but then it started to come out but actually it, it first came out in 1990 but just in scientific publications it's recently gone more mainstream that Hedy was this a genius who in her spare time in her trailer if they had trailers then would be scribbling inventions and she came up with something called radio frequency hopping won't bore you with the scientific details which of course I fully understand not but it was a way of um, protecting the Allies' military, their ships that were being blasted by Nazi U-boats. It was a way of deflecting the bombardment. And she took it to the U.S. Navy and said, look, here, I give you my, my, uh, my invention. They said, <laughs> you invented this. You're a woman. You're beautiful. You're an actress. And you're an alien all of a sudden because she was from Austria. No, thanks. Um, Hedy went off and had, you know, six marriages and her career went into the decline that all those careers eventually go into. The Navy take up this invention in 1959 after her patent had expired. And uh, and later it is it, it becomes the precursor of uh, Wi-Fi, um, GPS, Bluetooth. I mean, they, they estimate that had Hedy been able to make good on her invention, on her patent rather, it would be worth about 30 billion today to her. (laughs) And instead, she died in poverty and a recluse because among her other inventions and 
experiments was her own face. She always complained that nobody saw beyond her beauty, nobody took her seriously. But, you know, once her look started to fade, she then realized that actually being the most beautiful woman in the world wasn't so terrible. (laughs) And she started to have plastic surgery. And she would say to surgeons, she would tell them what to do. And at first it was relatively okay. She looked amazing in that sort of lifted way. But then it went really badly wrong um, towards her at the end of her life. And she she wouldn't go out because the press was just so, so cruel to her. It made me realize actually that we are maybe getting kinder to women. We're being more careful. We're being more careful. Good uh, differentiation. Surgeons are better these days. Well, some. <laughs> it sounds like the plot to a film, and it is, which, which you've Sorry, seen. Sorry, yes, it is. It's the, the film is uh, it's, it's a documentary, and it's amazing because it has got so much of Hedy in it. And she, 14 years before she died, called a journalist, gave him hours and hours of interview just on the by. I don't think he ever used it, but he kept the tape. So you have her voice throughout. Susan Sarandon produced it, so it's got a bit of heft behind it. It is the most compelling, strangest, but also saddest story, I think, because she was so unrecognised most of her life. And actually the director, Alexander Freen, said that she didn't think it was tragic because Hedy does come to some kind of peace at the end and says, well, you know what, if the world thinks you're useless and and a glamorous twit, and they're full of mean people who just want to knock you down. You should do what you want to do anyway. You should always try your best because you're living a life for you, not for others. Of course, she did live her life for others, even her grandchildren. She used to send them pictures of her as she had been, you know, a beautiful 30s, 40s movie star because she thought people only loved her for that. She's really been forgotten. I mean, my mother was actually named after Hedy Lamar. She was... For the first few days of her life, her name was Hetty, um, until my grandmother, her mother, got fed up with people saying, how's Hetty? And 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 my grandmother thinking that they were asking how Harry, her boss, was in a strong Yiddish accent. So so my mother is Heidi now. But, uh, you know, she's been been largely forgotten. And this documentary, which is called Bombshell, the Hetty Lamar story, it's... In I UK think the tide now. is changing for Hedy. I really hope so. I mean, it, it, I, saw, I saw a screening and Susan Sarandon and Alex Dean were there uh, answering questions afterwards on International Women's Day and it just seemed so particularly pertinent. You know, if she'd been a man and gone to the Navy, oh, I think it would have been a very different story. I also love that she, she was married to an arms dealer, wasn't she? And so it was through overhearing all the conversations that she, you know, and they just thought, oh, you know, this is this kind of glamorous trophy woman kind of sitting at the table. And actually she was taking in all those conversations and she was... Well, actually, Beth, and that, that's, that's sort of, that's slightly the opposition's argument because oh, what, really? what they said was, oh, she just, she stole it from her husband or, you know, she's just a magpie. Well, sometimes it pays to be underestimated. Well, also, No, frankly, I mean that she, she was learning from them and then she was the one who could yeah, overcome maybe. all the problems. I mean, even, yeah. you know, listen, I had problems following the, the science of, 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 of it in the movie. I mean, just to be able to follow it, let alone invent it or steal it, frankly. But I don't think she did steal it because the Nazis didn't use it. No. So, and if they had had it, she was born in Austria. Mm. Uh, she was a Jewish emigrant. She had to flee. You know, if, if the Nazis had had this technology via her first husband, you can bet they would have been using it and they weren't. 
So Hedy isn't the only brilliant woman that we've been thinking about this week. Um, last week was International Women's Day and Mattel chose to mark the occasion by releasing an inspiring women series of Barbie dolls. The first drop of dolls includes Amelia Earhart, NASA engineer Katherine Johnson and Frida Kahlo. Many, many people are not happy about this. Salma Hayek, who famously played Frida in a film that she wrote, produced, directed, some combination or all of those. And also members of Kahlo's family called out the doll's light-colored eyes and lack of a unibrow. Uh, But I've got to say, I think that this is only the very beginning of the Frida Kahlo bandwagonism we're going to see. Because, of course, in June, the V&A is opening Frida Kahlo, making herself up a huge exhibition. There's There's also a Tate Modern exhibition coming in June as well. There's a lot of Frida in the air. I'd just really like to recommend that people sort of block their ears to most of it because don't get sick of Frida. She's amazing. I mean, we are going to get sick of Frida, but we shouldn't because she's an incredible artist and and person. And um, it, it is quite sickening the way that she will be utterly exploited. However, having said that, I think the Mattel doll, okay, it's got light eyes, dreadful, and they didn't ask permission, even more dreadful. But, hey, isn't it nice to see a, a Barbie doll that doesn't look like a kind of porn star and that has a proper <laughs> well, I career? Well, the thing, I guess the, the idea of having a Barbie that's based on a woman who had an incredible life and incredible impact is fantastic. But as Salma pointed out, it doesn't really look... You know, Salma was immediately like her. Okay, it doesn't have the unibrow. It doesn't have the unibrow. So if we're celebrating women of achievement, if we're buying into the idea that Mattel is celebrating women of achievement, women of substance, then why are all the dolls still on the exact same Barbie, you know, bust to hip to waist ratio rubric? Why are the... Well, uh, yeah, Catherine Johnson, you know, has maybe like a pale latte color of skin as opposed to... So there's no real brown. diversity they're there. They're all very live. They're all they? very. They're all very very similar. The cost, you know, their outfits are different. But this is not celebrating individuality. This is celebrating another way to sell Barbie dolls. Because Frida was so um, so caught up in her look and crafting her own image and all those things that she did to 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 make herself into that almost iconic image mm. that we know today and i think that kind of makes it doubly problematic because Mattel is investing in this idea of Frida Kahlo without really um recognizing I, I what I is take, actually I take a slightly yeah. different tack which is i think we all know that the these toy companies are hugely exploitative and <laughs> and i think this is Unlike a tiny fashion. this is a <laughs> tiny step tiny step yeah. Fraught with all kinds of flaws, if you can be fraught with flaws. Uh, But it is a tiny step away from the blonde, blue-eyed, boobified Barbie with all her so-called assets right out on a plate for you. It does just feel like a very kind of simplified boiling down of Frida Kahlo is an embroidered blouse and flowers in her hair. And I think that's what a child will see. Flowers in her hair, and then you know no, every festival say, this summer. Will who be is this in her Frida Kahlo? Oh, she was an artist. I think it's a story actually that small girls can really identify with. She had, there was so much pain and drama and courage in her life. She's an absolutely wonderful role model, and actually, you know, they might come to her through this. So 
all is not lost. I think the V&A are going to have um, an incredible collection of all her personal kind of artefacts and even loads of her makeup is, is coming to London that's been... Um, until I think for 50 years it's all been kind of shut away and no one's been able to see it so it's just a shame this couldn't be a lesson in not overplucking your eyebrows because it's a teenage epidemic we all did it eyebrows (laughs) are a little bit thicker than the normal well we will have to continue discussing Frida another time many times I'm sure we'll return to the topic and her incredible wardrobe and her incredible art and also, if you do go to the exhibitions, one of the most fun things at any Frida exhibition is to look at the source of the paintings on the wall. Because, you know, in most exhibitions, it might say, you know, on loan from MoMA or private collection, Frida is heavily collected by Madonna. So expect to see her name on the wall <laughs> this summer. You can read more about these and other stories in today's paper and at telegraph.co.uk slash fashion. And email us. We'd love to know what you think of the podcast, including anything you'd like to hear more about. Or questions. We're good with fashion questions, too. We're on unzipped at telegraph.co.uk. If you haven't already done this, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. It helps more people find fashion unzipped. Question for the table. What has been your most complimented pair of shoes in recent memory? Bethan. Well, because I know what we're going to talk about, but this is genuinely true. Um, I bought some um, uh, Marks and Spencer's velvet little bow kitten heels um, a little while ago. And I think I'm going to wear them to be a bridesmaid in a couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, they're they're going down a treat. Those are good ones. Lisa, what about you? Well, it's divided. High-low, McQueen trainers, um, but also a pair of black patent very impractical but fabulous mules from the finery. Oh, good one. And Charlie, what about you? Well, at the recent um, Saint Laurent show in Paris, a colleague complimented me on my black cowboy boots, uh, thinking they were probably Saint Laurent. They were, in fact, from office. And I've had lots of compliments on them. They're not kind of cowboy in a spurs kind of way, a much more simplified, sleeker version. But It's something we've definitely noticed in our own office, on our own fashion desk, and filtering through all the stores. High street shoes are fantastic at the moment. Not only that, but don't you feel that shoes take such a bashing? I mean, I I love kitten heels and pointy little toes, and I've always been loyal to them. But my God, those points go the first or second time you wear them. And when you, if you've paid, you know, designer prices, 500 pounds, it's pretty gutting. Whereas when it's high street, you don't mind so much. I, I just... I'm doing the opposite of what my mother said, which was, you know, spend on your accessories and you can scrimp on your clothes. I spend on the clothes and, and, and the shoes. I like to get them on the high street when I can. I do think retailers have seriously raised their game when it comes to shoes. I mean, it, Charlie, in your reporting, you were talking a lot about the materials and the technology. I mean, I think even five years ago, if I went to survey Topshop shoe department, I would find that most of the shoes were made of imitation leather or... Or that's canvas. very fashionable now. The, yeah. the other thing is, I think, because satin and velvet have been such big fabrics in the last year or so, you know, the high street can do that. Satin is not an expensive fabric. Especially and, when it's stretchy. And, and cheap satin doesn't necessarily look any different from expensive satin. I mean, it's about the construction and the seaming. I feel there's been a big rise in those sort of treasure box sweetie kind of shoes you know ones with with bows and jewels and in you know gorgeous delectable colors and 
like you say, Lisa, I think the high street can really go to town on those, and you, and you can buy a few a few options as well. Which is it's also just the heartbreak factor of with a kitten heel. Mm. You know, if it's a four hundred pound pair of shoes and they're wrapped in satin, as soon as you step on a cobble, you're going <laughs> to take a little line out of that satin, and you know you will. And if mm. you've only spent twenty five quid in M and S it's a lot less heartbreaking. And as soon as you do put a feather trim or a crystal embellishment on a shoe, it's going to come off, you know? If you're going on the tube, we don't really live in a world where women carry shoes in their bag and put them on for dinner, do we? I mean, maybe for a special occasion. All right, Lisa's raising her And Emily. <laughs> I don't live in a world. Well, <laughs> let me say, that's much. actually laziness on my part because I refuse to walk farther in heels outdoors than I have to. So I will often wear, you know, commuting shoes. And then I have a graveyard of shoes under my desk. You've all seen it. Yeah. But I'm a walker and I like to just be able to spur of the moment think oh it's a lovely afternoon I'm going to walk home or Mm. I'll walk to dinner I don't want to be hindered by a pair of shoes that A are perhaps uncomfortable or B that I don't want to ruin we are hard on shoes they're on our feet they're going in puddles or on the tube and I think it's brilliant that this trend has really worked for the high street but also they have upped their games I think soles and heels are dead giveaways for cheap shoes and zips actually can be really naff um, and ruin kind of the look. Where of have you shoes. found? I mean, shout out to some heroes. Uh, well, Mango have actually got these um, sort of prism heels at the moment that just look beautiful and not like they've come off an assembly line. And th- there are just such more interesting styles around. Um, I actually, I've got a pair of white mango um, heels, a sort of shoe booty heels. And um, I was flicking through Instagram the other day and I. I noticed a very um, expensive New York designer had used them in their in their lookbook. Really? The exact That's shoes. So delicious. <laughs> More after the recording. Um, actually, yeah. and the other pair of shoes that I've had that have been really, everybody's commented on them this winter, has been a pair of velvet boots from Utake. And they're really well made. I have worn them almost every Those day. Those were the boots that launched your sock boot addiction, if I remember correctly. I think you might be right yeah. there, Emily. Utake have got a lot to answer for. And also, you can very inexpensively get high street shoes resold. If, you know, a lot of them do come with that slightly cheaper sole that doesn't have any grip and won't wear necessarily very well, but it costs, you know, eight pounds in my local cobbler to get to a pair be, of shoes To be resold. fair, when you do buy designer shoes, you know, at a sample sale, they come with beautiful leather soles which you also have to cover immediately immediately so that's something we should all just make a habit of Um, but of course it's not just shoes in Wednesday's paper we wrote about the high street pieces that should be on everyone's shopping list I've got my eye on a whistle's coat unfortunately unfortunately I can't do anything about it since Lisa and Charlie already have this coat no I don't have it oh you don't no I would I I'm like you Emily I would love it but Charlie got there first. Yeah. We can set up a WhatsApp group, Emily, if you'd like. (laughs) (laughs) Just do certain days of the week. (laughs) Uh, But there is some really good stuff out there right now. What else have you you spotted? I must say, I've really come round to Arkit. I know everybody loved it in the beginning. I thought it was a bit too minimal for my taste. Mm. It was was quite Scandinavian. You were not a minimalist. Lots of dark colours. I'm not a minimalist. But I went in the other day actually to go to the cafe because I had some copy to write on a deadline. Went looking for the loo, it was raining, found myself kind of perusing these rails and thinking, actually, these are beautiful things. And the things. quality is nice, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. They've got an amazing floral skirt that I just wouldn't have thought was from market, but I was wrong. I eat my words. I sort of have those sections in the high street that I sort of know to aim at, but I love it when you when you get a bit surprised. So the other day I was, I was in Zara and I just walked past the... Um, I don't remember what it's called now. Is it TRX? The, the sort of that's young TRX. exercise. TRX, <laughs> that's the one. There we go. Um, 
you know, and I, I cannot remember the last time I wore anything there. And then just out the corner of my eye, I saw this beautiful sort of um, navy shirt dress with these horn buttons kind of curving down it and was very pleasantly surprised I, and I have bought it. I think the key it. Is, to, is, to, is to try and find something fabulous but isn't going to be on everybody else. That's quite tricky, isn't it? Mm. You have to really hit the shops. You know, it's not enough to see something online. And It's really not. Yeah. I think that... It, to that point, you sort of have to avoid the first thing that you see when you get in because that's always put there because mm. it's going to have mass appeal. But you need to kind of snake around, look at the back of the rails. And, you know, the other place where lots of fashion editors go now rather than um, Zara, not that Zara isn't fabulous, but you do have that ubiquity problem is, is H&M because I think H&M's offer might be even bigger than Zara's. Mm. Anyway, a friend who works on Harper's Bazaar last night was actually WhatsApping me stuff that from... Um, from H&M and it's fabulous. My favorite H&M trick is if you go on the website and you look in the sections, there's one called Trend and that's yeah. where all yes. the really great stuff yeah. is. Read Charlie's full story in This Weekend Stella magazine and online at telegraph.co.uk forward slash fashion on Sunday. And just a reminder that we gather all the stories we discuss every week in a news article on the website. So do come and visit us to find out more about everything we've discussed. And email us. We're on unzipped at telegraph.co.uk. We're nearly at the end of the episode. But first, let's go through my favorite part of the podcast and yours, hopefully. Something you're excited about this week. Bethan, what are you thrilled to share with the team? Um, well, I'm very excited that I'm going on holiday next week. So I'm not excited to pack, but I am excited because that means that I'm going to Barbados and I'm getting my first son in over a year. Oh my gosh, Would well deserved. Because last year, somehow I managed to only do tepid holidays. So uh, I'm getting my bikini out. I'm going to do that thing where I take like 400 sundresses for five days. Um, and just change every hour or something. And Instagram each transformation. <laughs> well, um, yeah, if only I was that kind of dedicated social media influencer. Thank goodness you aren't. <laughs> Have a great trip. Charlie, what about you? I'm excited to, uh, rather sadly, uh, binge watch some Netflix. Is anyone else watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? Oh my God, oh, I love it. Fantastic. I cried. I have <laughs> cried. I, I watched the original and it was it was great. So this is completely trashy. New. T- it's completely new. It's, so and it's, it's based- just called Queer Eye now because they're not all straight. Okay. Mm. So it's based on the same premise, but they've given it kind of a 2018 remix, which basically means that they're talking about politics. They're, you know, some of the men they're making over are Trump supporters or, you know, are yes. really religious, have been uncomfortable with homosexuality in the past. And they're, they're doing these really in-depth conversations. It's still got all the kind of fun wrapping of a makeover show. But it's fantastic. And they had a young uh, gay guy on who was kind of semi-closeted and trying to come out to his stepmother. And it's just a fantastic show. You've sold. You've sold it. <laughs> Great catchphrases as well. Like, oh my so-and-so goodness. is strugs to funk. Strugs to funk. Struggling <laughs> to function. <laughs> this is now required viewing. Is. I need a T-shirt with that on. <laughs> strugs to funk. Uh, Lisa, what about you? I'm very excited because tonight I'm going to a private view of the Picasso blockbuster at the Tate. It's set in one year of his life, an incredibly prolific year. I shall be trying to go with not a queer eye, but an eye from that period. Because I think when you look at these amazing disruptors, as we'd now call them, yawn, um, you know, you think, okay, yes, it's great, but you don't get the full shock that you would have had back in the 30s of, of seeing, I mean, 
He was so inventive. You know, to find a new way of looking at everything is just incredible. So I'm going to, um, I'll be going around with the curator and um, and I think there will be lessons from that that I hope I'll be able to bring to fashion shows, looking at, you know, just, just wiping the canvas clean and coming to everything fresh. Also, as somebody said to me the other day, hmm, well, do you think that Picasso was well behaved with women? We were talking about the whole you know, time's up issue. No, I don't I don't necessarily think that's a good argument for condoning today's activities. But, you know, that's where, what I where would Where would be history doing. be if we went back and reviewed the behaviours wow. of every man? That's I know. Quite it's, terrifying. it's so it's yeah. so true, but we also have to move forward in everything, not just technology, but in the way we treat one another. It's the Woody Allen box set conundrum, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> I know. Well, Lisa, I actually saw the show yesterday and you're in for a treat. Um, I went to see the Modigliani exhibition I on the same floor, too. which is closing very shortly, and then nipped into Picasso and and just was flooded by beauty. It's a, it's and an incredible. Don't you love that Picasso said that Modigliani was the best dressed man in Paris, and he did it all on a very very shoestring budget. They didn't even have Uniqlo then. <laughs> they didn't even have Uniqlo. Um, yes, thank you, Lisa Armstrong. And as for me, I had my birthday in Paris on the last day of Fashion Week but didn't really celebrate it when I got home. It was all too hectic. So I took a day in lieu yesterday and had like kind of a dream tourist day out in London, went to the Tate Modern, went out to lunch at Nopi. A friend was over from New York and we um, went to the Espa at the Corinthia. Oh, that's a good one. But it's so nice and to Oprah be a tourist there. in your own town. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She was actually, did you see She her? was not in the spa. She oh. was doing interviews for A Wrinkle in Time. And then we ended the night at the theater and it was just such a great reminder that every now and then, if you can, it's so worth taking a, a vacation for a day in your own city and getting out and doing things that you've been meaning to do or wanting to do but are often too tired to do. And um, that day and that massage are going to be something that I return to often over the next, over the next few weeks, I'm sure, at least mentally, if not in reality. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's episode 14. Please check back next week for another episode of Fashion Unzipped. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.